guys. I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the show, you can become a contributor at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted for just a buck a month, which is less than what we all pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes. If you contribute a little bit more, I'll even send you a Words for Granted mug. If Patreon's not your thing, but you'd still like to help keep this show on the road, you can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. Thanks to John, Ingo, and Daisy for their recent contributions. All right. On to today's episode, part three in our series on American English. Quote, The first American colonists had perforce to invent Americanisms if only to describe the unfamiliar landscape and weather, flora and fauna, confronting them. End quote. That's the first line in H. L. Mencken's book, The American Language, and I can't think of a better way to begin a discussion of American English from a historical perspective particularly if we want to discuss the language's unique lexicon, or, in laypeople's terms, its unique word stock. The near-immediate emergence of new loanwords in American English is perhaps the earliest and most obvious way in which the American lexicon began to diverge from that of Britain, so that's where our story begins. European explorers called the Americas the New World for a reason. It was a land rife with new things that Europeans had literally never seen before, such as raccoons, possums, moose, canoes, kayaks, squash, maize, hammocks, tomahawks, powwows, and moccasins, among many others. Oh, and let's not forget about Native American peoples. It's not surprising that the words on this brief list all derive from Native American languages and that they were borrowed into English very early in the colonial period. When speakers of a language travel almost 4,500 miles to a new continent for the very first time in history, naturally, that language is going to pick up a thing or two from its new home. However, the influx of Native American loanwords into English came to an early end, as European-born diseases had wiped out the vast majority of the native populations within the first century of European settlement. Nonetheless, the English language still managed to pick up hundreds of foreign loanwords from other sources during this early period. Although non-British settlers made up only 10% of the European population in the Americas, the languages spoken by that 10% would make a permanent impact on American English. There were Dutch, German, Spanish, and French settlements in America, and British contact with these non-British settlers resulted in the adaptation of foreign words into American English that were unknown to the English spoken on the other side of the Atlantic. American English picked up words such as cookie, stoop, waffle, and boss from Dutch, pretzel, angst, kindergarten, and sauerkraut from German, canyon, mesa, and rodeo from Spanish, and prairie, cachet, and levee from French. There are many more examples of American English borrowings from these languages during the early colonial period, but these sufficiently demonstrate the point. In the following centuries, multicultural immigrants to America would introduce even more foreign words into the everyday language of Americans, but that's later on in the story. The English spoken by British colonists in America not only acquired new words from new neighbors, but it also used pre-existing English words in new ways. For example, in Britain, the noun lumber meant 
pieces of broken furniture or any heavy useless objects that take up space, but in America it came to mean timber from trees used for building. In Britain, the noun corn referred to a wide number of grains, aka wheat in modern American English, but after the first wave of British immigration to America, the American usage of corn became synonymous with Indian corn, or maize. Given the abundance of maize in the New World, the Indian part of Indian corn quickly fell out of use, and the American sense of corn became restricted to this single and distinct New World crop. These are two good examples of divergent semantic evolution in American English, because in modern British English, the original senses of both lumber and corn still exist. British immigration to America was at an all-time high during the 17th century, and naturally, these immigrants brought the language of their day with them. As a result, American English has actually preserved many British words from that time period, words that would become archaisms in Britain itself just decades later. To some degree, American English also preserved some features of the British accent from that time period. While our imaginations might fancy the idea of original Shakespearean actors delivering to be or not to be in the most refined Queen's English, in reality, the 21st century standard American accent sounds more like a 17th century British accent than a 21st century standard British accent does. Instead of going down the fascinating rabbit hole of accents right now, I'm going to save that for an entire episode unto itself. Instead, let's look at two of these British archaisms that were preserved by British immigrants to America. Fall, as in the season, and mad, as in angry. During the 17th century, British English used both fall and autumn to describe the season before winter, but from the 18th century onward, autumn became the more predominant word by far. On the contrary, when British pilgrims came to America, fall became the more predominant word while autumn took the back seat. Perhaps British immigrants to America started preferring the word fall because the colorful transformation of North American forests around them during that time of year is a breathtaking sight that actualized the literal meaning of the word before their eyes on an annual basis. In Middle English, mad had a range of meanings including insane, deranged, violent, furious, rabid, and angry. All of these meanings, minus angry, are preserved in the modern British usage of the word, while angry is the only one of these meanings preserved by the American English usage. While the British sense of mad appears in idioms used by Americans such as mad hatter, mad scientist, like mad, and madhouse, it's rare to hear an American use the word mad on its own to mean insane or deranged. I don't think anyone knows why the word's meaning became restricted in America, but it's one of those Americanisms that the earliest defenders of pure British English, whatever that even means, first began to denounce. However, these denouncements were made in either genuine or willful ignorance of the fact that the sense of mad meaning angry actually was recorded on British soil first. While on the topic of British denouncements of American English, and there are a lot of them, we should address the liberality with which Americans turned nouns into verbs. 17th and 18th century Brits hated it, but it's something we do in modern English all the time. If you've ever texted, googled, or skyped someone, then you've verbed a noun. Two of the most hated verb nouns in American English were progress and notice, 
both of which started their lives out as nouns. The noun form of progress is pronounced progress, but they're variations of the same word. Although these grammatical usages were viewed as barbarous in Britain, surprise, surprise, like the American senses of fall and mad, the verbs progress and notice first appear in the British written record, not the American one. A short list of verb nouns that are genuine Americanisms, that is, words that were actually created in America, includes to dump, to room, to squat, and to blow, as in to screw something up. And now, for a quick word from our sponsor. Words for Granted is a proud member of the CLNS Network, and today's episode is brought to you by Blinklist. If you're like me, you love reading nonfiction, but the list of books that you'd like to read is impossibly long. There simply aren't enough hours in the day or days in a lifetime to read the number of books that I'd like to read. Well, Blinklist has created an app to solve this very problem. Blinklist has distilled thousands of nonfiction titles down to their most essential elements so you can read or listen to them in around 15 minutes right from your phone. You can listen to the titles on Blinklist just like you would listen to a podcast, anytime, anywhere. I've been listening to Blinklist while cooking dinner and folding clothes. Blinklist is constantly curating and adding new titles from best of lists, so you're always getting new summaries of the most powerful ideas in a made-for-mobile format. Whether you want to catch the gist of a classic like Think and Grow Rich or a current bestseller like Fire and Fury, I'm sure Blinklist will have something for you. I personally would recommend Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. Most of us know who Stephen Hawking is, but few of us actually know his work firsthand. With Blinklist's quick yet thorough encapsulation of Hawking's seminal book from 1988, you can come one step closer to understanding the mind of a modern genius in just 20 minutes. Right now, for a limited time, Blinklist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinklist.com words to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinklist spelled B-L-I-N-K-L-I-S-T. Blinklist.com words to start your free seven-day trial. Blinklist.com words. And now, back to American English. Another way English speakers in America began innovating the language was by adding prefixes and suffixes to pre-existing base words. The word length has been around in English since Old English, but the adjective lengthy is first recorded in America. The word immigrant is first recorded in Britain during the 17th century, and from that, the Americans were quick to create the verb form immigrate. And then there's belittle. In notes on the state of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson combines the prefix be with the base word little, thus inventing the word belittle. Today, belittle means to disparage, demean, or regard as unworthy, but in Jefferson's original usage, it meant literally to be made little. The passage in which it first appears is a rebuttal against George Louis Buffon, a French naturalist who believed that American animals, plants, and people were by nature smaller and weaker than their old world equivalents due to a cold and wet climate. Yeah, great idea. <laughs> um, Jefferson writes, quote, So far, the Count de Buffon has carried this new theory of the tendency of nature to belittle her productions on this American side of the Atlantic. End quote. Jefferson's coinage of belittle is probably the most famously denounced of any Americanism from the Revolutionary Era. 
Here's an excerpt from a 1787 article in the European Magazine and London Review that offers its two cents on the word. Quote, Belittle. What an expression. It may be an elegant one in Virginia, or even perfectly intelligible, but all we can do is to guess at its meaning. For shame, Mr. Jefferson. Why, after trampling upon the honor of our country and representing it as little better than a land of barbarism, why, we say, perpetually trample also upon the very grammar of our language? Freely, good sir, will we forgive all your attacks, impotent as they are illiberal, upon our national character, but for the future, spare, oh, spare, we beseech you, our mother tongue. End quote. That's a whole lot of melodrama over the word belittle. Maybe the outrage in this British article is due to the fact that the prefix be is etymologically Germanic, and in proper English morphology, or word construction, be should only be added to verbs, as in bestow, behead, and befriend. But maybe I'm being too analytical here. The reality may be that it just sounded strange and uneducated to the British literati's sensibility. I should also note here that in the original text of the excerpt that I just read, the author italicizes the word guess in the sentence, all we can do is to guess its meaning. This italicization is not for the sake of emphasis. The British word guess originally meant to infer based on an observation or to judge, but in America, it began to be used as a synonym for to believe, to suppose, or to imagine, particularly without much conviction, as in the phrase, I guess so. Note that this American usage has ultimately shifted the primary meaning of to guess from to conjecture based on evidence to to estimate based on insufficient evidence in modern English across the globe. The italicization of guess in the European Magazine and London Review article deliberately highlights the author's ironic usage of and distaste for the American sense of the word. Sometimes the forces behind semantic change are seemingly arbitrary. There's no apparent reason why Americans began using guess in a new way that differed from their British linguistic kin. However, some semantic changes that took place in America actually reflect language adapting to new circumstances and ways of life. To see what I mean, Let's take a look at the word locate. Originally, locate was an intransitive verb that meant to establish oneself in a place or to take up a fixed residence. If you need a refresher on what intransitive means, it's when a verb doesn't take a direct object. In 17th century British English, you'd say something like, I'm locating from Brighton to London. There's no direct object there, just prepositional phrases. If we were to render this sentence in modern English with accurate semantics, we'd probably say, I'm relocating from Brighton to London, but the word relocate wasn't coined until the 19th century, and it probably emerged as a byproduct of the semantic change I'm about to describe. By the mid-18th century in America, locate had come to mean to put something in a particular place. Not only had its meaning fundamentally shifted, but it also had become a transitive verb. Unlike intransitive verbs, transitive verbs need a direct object to receive their action. So Americans were saying things like, I located the marker 35 miles from the edge of the woods, meaning I put the marker 35 miles from the edge of the woods. It's likely that they were saying something exactly like that, as a matter of fact, because this new usage of locate first became common among land surveyors. 
Unlike Britain, whose complete geography had been known and owned for centuries, North America contained thousands of miles of uncharted and unclaimed land. That is, uncharted and unclaimed from the European point of view. By the late 19th century, this American sense of the word shifted again. Instead of meaning to put something in a particular place, to locate now meant to find something in a particular place. And that's the sense of the word most commonly used today. The reason I mentioned this shift from intransitive to transitive, in addition to its semantic shift, is because contemporary Britons condemned the American usage of the word as incorrect on both counts. As you've probably picked up by now, the British reaction to the way English was being spoken across the Atlantic was overwhelmingly negative. If you want a more comprehensive discussion of this general attitude and its origins, I recommend listening to the previous episode in this series in which I interview Lynn Murphy, author of the recent book, The Prodigal Tongue, The Love-Hate Relationship Between American and British English. While the American senses of guess, locate, and many other words were incorrect by British standards, they simultaneously demonstrate a linguistic inventiveness and vitality that had dried up in British English by the 18th century. I think we can attribute this linguistic stagnation to a contemporary obsession with prescriptivism among British intellectuals. In linguistics, prescriptivism is the idea that a language should be spoken in a certain way according to laid-out rules. Naturally, prescriptivism fosters a conservative mindset toward language, and this conservatism is resistant toward accepting language change, whether that's semantic change or the invention of new words. Prescriptivism is more of an ideological take on language than a scientific one, because most modern scientists of language, aka linguists, can tell you that the fundamental nature of language is that it changes, and that no one way of speaking is inherently superior to or more correct than another. The correctness of standardized language is merely a social construct usually created by people in power. These British prescriptivists' biggest influence at the time was probably Samuel Johnson's magnum opus, A Dictionary of the English Language, published in Britain in 1755. Johnson's work quickly became the authoritative reference for how English words should be used, and while a gigantic volume compiling words with definitions may make it seem like language is a fixed permanent thing, Johnson's dictionary, or any dictionary ever for that matter, is a product of its time, not eternity. It's ironic, then, that these same British intellectuals revered the works of William Shakespeare. Shakespeare, as I'm sure many of you know, created new words left and right, and his methods of neologism, or word inventing, were not dissimilar to those of the Americans. He created new compounds, added suffixes and prefixes to pre-existing base words, changed nouns into verbs, and changed verbs into adjectives. Many of these Shakespearean words, by the way, aren't poetic or arcane-sounding. They include mundane words that we still use every day, such as eyeball, bedroom, amazement, worthless, discontent, and laughable, among hundreds more. Shakespeare didn't invent the word amaze, but he invented the noun form, amazement. He didn't invent the word laugh, but he invented the adjectival form, laughable. Much of his linguistic creativity, like that of the Americans, lay in simply adapting words to new parts of speech. The reason I've digressed on this point for a bit is because I don't want you to think that the American English innovations from the 17th and 18th centuries are anything out of the ordinary from the point of view of linguistics. English writers of far lesser stature than Shakespeare, and not to mention ordinary people, had been making up new words for centuries. 
Language is a long continuum of people using old words and new ones to express their unique time and place. So, to arbitrarily decide, okay, time to close the door to all new words and word meanings because um, we've got all the words we need now, is just naive. The negative British response to American English, mixed with the British colonists' growing spirit of political independence, created a deliberate attitude of American linguistic independence as well. The majority of American men of letters embrace their unique speech as patriotic and a reflection of their daring national spirit. To get a glimpse into the American attitude of the time, here's an excerpt from Noah Webster's opening essay to Dissertations on the English Language. Quote, As an independent nation, our honor requires us to have a system of our own, in language as well as government. Great Britain, whose children we are and whose language we speak, should no longer be our standard. She is at too great a distance to instruct us or to be a model for our own tongue. End quote. Noah Webster is probably the most influential person on the American language ever, particularly on its spelling, and we'll be talking a lot more about him in due time. But for now, I think we can bring this episode to a close. Okay, hopefully that was a comprehensive overview for you. If you'd like me to continue with the story of America's emerging lexicon through the 19th and 20th centuries, please let me know at wordsforgranted at gmail.com, and I will work that one into the series. As you can see, there's a heck of a lot to talk about. FYI, I might be a week late on the upcoming episode, but trust me, I'm not going anywhere for long. I'll be back. Okay, don't forget you can support the show at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted, and if that's not in your budget, then you can just leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Those really help out the show, as I'm sure you know. I'm on Twitter and Facebook as wordsforgranted, and you can email me directly at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you soon. The big in big wireless provider stands for a lot of things. Big contracts, big bills, and big fees. What big wireless doesn't want you to know is there's a way to cut your wireless bill down to just 15 bucks a month. Introducing Mint Mobile, the game-changing company that's taken everything wrong with big wireless and made it right. Mint Mobile makes it so easy to cut your bill down to just 15 bucks a month. You can even keep your old number, along with all your existing contacts, with any Mint Mobile plan. There's no more paying for unlimited data that you'll never use. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their 7-day money-back guarantee. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, plus free shipping on your Mint Mobile SIM card, go to mintmobile.com podcast. That's mintmobile.com podcast. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month and get free shipping on your Mint Mobile SIM card at mintmobile.com slash podcast. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers stay clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boy's easy opening, smooth pouring container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big